You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is Dr. Charles Knight. Dr. Knight is a Senior Lecturer in Terrorism, Asymmetric Conflict, and Urban Operations at Charles Stewart University and a Senior Researcher at the University of New South Wales. He's also the epitome of a special combination of both academic and practitioner, having spent over 20 years in the Australian Army. The topic of today's podcast is the 2017 Battle of Morari that took place between May 23rd, 2017 and October 23rd, 2017 in Morari City, Philippines. Charles, welcome to the show. John, thank you very much. And I'm delighted to be here and have the opportunity to to share the story of the battle and some of the learnings from the Filipinos, because I think that there is a lot to be learned from them. And I, I guess there's also that adage from Bismarck, I prefer to learn from the mistakes of others. Look, I'd start, if I may, by proposing a puzzle about preparedness in urban more generally. So the scout rangers who fought in the Battle of Marawi two or three days before were fighting communist rebels in the jungle. They are competent, capable soldiers, good professional soldiers. I mean, um, MacArthur famously said, give me 10,000 Filipinos and I'll conquer the world. But they were not prepared for an urban fight. And that's a very old story. In 1846, Monterey, I think, the US troops had to knock holes in the walls to progress against the Mexicans. In 1848, uprisings all across Europe, professional soldiers being shot down by rebels with rifled muskets, knock holes in walls to progress. Franco-Prussian War, Bavarians take lots of casualties, stone houses, until their artillery knocks holes in walls. Same thing happens in the early battles of 1914, 1916, the British in Dublin. Again and again, we learn to make or become called mouse holes. Now, the point here is it's learned, forgotten, learned, forgotten. And the scout rangers in their battle report said, we've discovered something new. The enemy are using rat holes and we're using rat holes as well. So this story of Marawi is also a story of lessons relearned that could have been retrieved from the history books. And I think that's an, an important framing here. But anyway, let's look at the, the battle itself. In 2017, insurgents planned to seize the Islamic city of Marawi and declare it a wiliat, a province of the Islamic State. Now, that was a potential act of great symbolism at the time, had the potential to inspire across the region and particularly on the island of Mindanao. The Muslim Moro people of Mindanao have got a history of fierce resistance to outsiders and bitter memories of fighting the Spanish, the Americans, and then for many decades now, the Philippines government. And the Moro um, various groups, the Moro National Liberation Front from about 1972 and from 1996, the Moro Islamic Liberation Front. Now, both those big groups, and we're talking sort of multi-battalion sized insurgent organizations had military self-control of of various areas, but they variously had reached peace agreements in return for expanded self-rule in the period we're talking about, so from 2014 onwards. Now, sort of looking at a bit more focus, the the area of Marawi is a sub- culture of of the Muslim Moros. They're a mercantile trading community, and they have their own quite distinct subculture of violent 
clan warfare called Rido. The tradition of fighting in amongst the clans in Marawi is, is so endemic that nearly everybody has a cellar which they reinforce with concrete and they keep firearms and food down there for when the clashes break out. Um, so that that's relevant because it, because it sets the precon- you know, ready-made defences. But perhaps more significant is that within that culture, the Moro culture generally, and specifically in Maranaros, the cultural obligation to fight for your blood relatives is huge. It's a bit like the Pashtun Wali in, in Afghanistan. So that becomes relevant as the battle develops. So if we go back to the 2014 peace deal, the Islamic State then sort of rises in, in the Middle East. And by you know, 16 is becoming very powerful and radical, if you like, more extremist groups across that area, but particularly on Mindanao, want to reject the peace deal with the government and go for total independence under Islam. And there's a, an affiliation grows up between the powerful Maute clan, one of the clans within Marawi, and other affiliated groups which have now sworn allegiance to Islamic State. So Abu Sayyaf, for instance. So what you've got there is an, an alliance between a group with local knowledge and outside capability when the Abu Sayyaf have been mounting texts for many years. Now, the military knew of some level of infiltration from about 2017, and they mounted a few operations to try and learn more. But their warnings back to the political level and to the community were largely disbelieved. So they knew something was going on. But what seems to have been happening is that the insurgent narrative within the Maranoa, within the Marawi community was accepted, and they were believed to be protectors of the Muslim population. And the evidence for that is that several hundreds of insurgents infiltrated into the city in early May from all over the country, and in fact, from outside the Philippines. And there were no actionable reports that reached the security forces. So maybe a good moment to mention the geography of Marawi because it's quite important. You may have seen photographs, there's water, but it's not actually on the on the sea, it's on a lake. But the lake bounds two sides of the city and then the city is divided by the Argus River, which is fairly fast flowing and steeply banked, and there are only three bridges. So you've got an area that's got basically obstacles on three sides. So that again works in the insurgents' favour, and there were only three roads in and out. There was a Armed Forces of the Philippines, AFP presence outside. In fact, there's a brigade headquarters just on the outside and a couple of police stations inside. But because of this historic peace deal they'd signed with some of the insurgent groups a few years before, the military presence in the city was kept the absolute minimum. And that obviously has some significance here. So that's the geography. I'll try to give a, a snapshot of the crisis. And it's a five-month crisis and confusingly called a siege by the press, but it's probably most easily understood in, in six stages. So we can think about the infiltration and the planning by the insurgents, and then a raid that becomes a bit unraveled. Then there's a period of anarchy, then a period of reaction, then a period of consolidation by the state, and ultimately the deliberate recovery operation. So if we look at that in turn, at the beginning, the Maute ISIL group planned to seize Marawi on the first day of Ramadan. Now, that has religious symbolism, but also practical effect because citizens stock up on extra food supplies for Ramadan. And the plan was to infiltrate and attack the main army camp, government locations. They knew that most army units were 30 kilometers away fighting communist insurgents in the jungle, and they sighted ambushes on all three roads where reinforcements would come. So this is happening. Infiltration and planning is happening unknown to the military. 
but they know something's going down. And the next stage is this, it's what I call a disrupted and disruptive. So the raid that is mounted changes the, the subsequent events. So the police and the military had only been hearing noise. And when they got information that three key leaders, so the two Maute brothers and Islan Hapridon, were meeting in a safe house in Western Marawi, they mounted an immediate arrest operation using most of their available resources. Given that they expected to make maybe 10 people, it was solid. Special ops troops, rangers, reconnaissance troops, and an, an armoured fighting vehicle unit, which was providing the stop groups. So when this team approached the objective, the, the safe house, and it was led by a civilian vehicle, a firefight broke out. And to the Filipinos' surprise, about 100 jihadis emerge from buildings all around and this huge firefight ensued and the leadership narrowly escaped in, ironically, a hole in the wall. And the sound of that firing then brings on the next stage, which I characterise as anarchy or anarchy assaults, atrocity and ambushes. So the fighting triggers a rampage. So hundreds more jihadis all across Marawi you know, come out of their hiding places. They desecrate the cathedral. They set fire to the college. In some cases, they execute those who can't recite the Shahada, the Muslim article of faith. They attack the police station, kill the police. They attack the prison. They free the prisoners and arm them. And about 500 fighters attack the army base. So what ensues is chaos. The few remaining troops who aren't in the middle of a firefight trying to defend the base try to relieve the pinned raiding forces and then they are ambushed in turn and some of those so the raid force itself that went into the arrest is trapped for several days a number of the police teams and army teams responding in armored vehicles are ambushed and trapped or killed and the as the scale of the whole thing becomes apparent martial laws declared the president who's in moscow at the time declares martial law at distance and all operations all around the country cease and and probably a few hundred more locals join the rebellion, but most of the population just bunker down. Some very he- heroically sheltering their Christian neighbours because there, there is a, a small number of Christians living in Marawi. So that sort of tr- brings us to the next stage, which we could call the sort of reaction or the reaction, the rescues, the exodus and the containment. So all across the city, small groups are hiding and they're using mobile phones and social media to plea for rescue from the government forces and local government, the civil government around. And that very quickly becomes the priority. So there are ad hoc groups of police and soldiers, and also volunteers led by civil community leaders begin to try and find ways in and to bring trapped people out. And this stage is really important for the shaping of the narrative because the jihadis have claimed to be liberators and protectors. And that probably survived as, an, as a story right up until the time that they, you know, they set fire to the cathedral, to the college as well, and attack the hospital. And this is the local boys smashing their own city. So the locals are, are worried about this. And then the other thing that's happened is uprisings in Philippine cities aren't that unusual, but you usually get a ceasefire within a couple of days. So when that didn't happen and the people remembered that in the 70s there'd been martial law and the military had been really brutal, they thought, okay, yeah, for a combination of reasons, they start to flee. So at the same time as police and military reinforcements are coming from all across the country, you've got thousands of displaced people trying to come out. So the security forces are trying to prevent fighters 
infiltrating in or out and continue the rescues. And it's like chaos is the word I use. But by early June, you've got about 1,500 people have been recovered, but they're probably 500 still trapped or actually being held hostage, which sort of brings us to a slowing down stage, what I call consolidation, sort of a reinforcing the forces, reframing the narrative and realigning. So over the period of several weeks, the armed forces and the police slowly begin to secure the perimeter and a task force is assembled from all over the country. But really importantly, right from the start, the Armed Forces of the Philippines emphasise both symbolic and very practical actions to support a soft power message. What they want to do is reframe the government response. So as an example, one of the combat engineer regiments that's being sent down there to prepare for the fight gets retasked to shelter construction. The point being that being seen to be doing something for the population, even if it's only token, is enormously important. And similarly, they raised what they called the hijab brigade of women from the forces all over the country who were wearing modest Muslim dress to put them on the checkpoints to do the searching of the women, because again, that was a potential flashpoint. And perhaps surprisingly, they gave a lot of political authority for all non-military decisions to local leaders. So unprecedented there. So feeding a narrative of, of the government is working with the local community, probably the most important important thing of all is they essentially did a deal with the two Muslim insurgent groups who at the time had a ceasefire with the government and and involved them directly in the evacuation of the population, which had the fairly obvious advantage of the insurgents who who are currently fighting don't want to antagonize the other insurgents. So looking from afar, it's pretty chaotic, but there are some reasons why it's taking time. And then behind the scenes, as it were, behind the screen, more accurately, a task force is being created. And it's basically three brigade-sized combined arms task groups, one Marine and two Army, all with police elements, and then there's a maritime force on the lake. And the Joint Task Force organization isn't particularly surprising to a military person. But what was interesting is the creation of two additional name joint task groups commanded by brigadier. In other words, at peer level, one of those task groups are responsible for coordinate security, rehab and stakeholder engagement, essentially for the cordon and everything inside that's not kinetic. And then another another senior group, another task group, responsible for information support, managing internally displaced people and supporting the civil military operations. That's a pretty big focus because you're signaling with the level of command you're giving there, this is equal. And once that that was underway. The Filipinos then got into what I'd characterize as a deliberate recovery operation. And they use the term slicing. So that comes from S for strategizing their plan, L for locating the enemy, I for isolating them, C for constricting them, and finally E for eliminating. Now, that's a systematic offensive operation with a huge problem of hostages and not destroying the mosques because they were denied using firepower in the mosques, which become significance I'll mention in a moment. So I do have a couple of questions at this point. You talked about the different phases of the operation of the way you broke it down, but what was the population of Moari when it all started? Depending on where you draw the boundaries is argued between 250,000 and 350,000. And it's generally accepted that the population that shifted was about 250,000. So pretty much every, well, everybody from the absolute central area and most people from the area that you typically see on the, on the maps of Marawi, certainly that area within, bounded by the, the river on one side and the two sides of the lake on the other, pretty much everybody from there. So that'd probably be about 200,000 from there, another 50,000 from the area around. 
I know you kind of talked about how this all started with the infiltration and then the you know, the initial raid of the Philippine military. How much time is there between the basically martial law being called and this complete evacuation of the city? Because by June, you said there's 500 civilians left. So that's, I know from my own research, it's like 90% of the population evacuated. How much time did it take for that? And was that like a planned operation, getting them out of the combat area? No, absolutely wasn't a planned operation. And I think the first thing to say is the raid is often characterized as having gone wrong. But if you look at it, plan was competent. It was reasonable for what they expected. And in the fact that they mostly survived, despite having effectively been ambushed by 100 people, says they did it right. It's just that the situation was not at all what they expected. And so whilst it was a, a failure as an arrest raid, what it did was trigger the seizure prematurely. Because what the insurgents planned to do was to put checkpoints on every point in and out of the city and have people there stopping anybody leaving. And had that actually happened, the problem would have been many times worse because the Philippine government or the the AFP would have had to attack with a population still in place. But to answer your question, I think you talk about how many days. So it's my understanding is that it's about three days when the narrative amongst the community begins to change and the population starts to flow out. And, And it's about the same time that we're seeing social or videos of executions but the college has been burnt the the cathedral has been smashed up and the dynamic of how that occurs within the population when we were there visiting and talking to them some of the local community leaders were explaining that prior to all this happening they would openly have not trusted the military and what happened during those following weeks change their view. Now, of course, we were talking to people who'd been chosen to talk to us, but broadly, it's consistent with what occurred. So a few days of chaos, and then people, small groups start to leave. And then there's this mass exodus, which occurs for about a week after that. And where'd they go? Those who could to other relatives and friends. The major evacuation routes were down either side of the roads, going either side of the lake. And that's where the other insurgent groups were involved in basically putting pickets along the representatives all along to guide the refugees so that the sort of refugee reception areas, IDP rather, not refugees, um, IDP reception areas which are run by the military are further out so that the military aren't, you know, trying to operate humanitarian things right up close to where the fighting's going on. But initially, it's really, really messy. So the community leaders are trying to establish some degree of control. So again, what was significant was giving the religious and local leaders authority to decide what would happen and then sending them what limited military support that was available for that deploying it according to the wishes of the local leaders. That's unprecedented and was, I think, part of the important messaging. So when you said that the Joint Task Force, really the one involved in the reaction, I guess, and I know you talked about the three different task forces, but the, the main Joint Task Force was three brigades, combined arms, regiments, if I, if I caught that right. And what is that comprised of? What did they marshal together? Is that just part of the Philippine military already? So base in Marawi is the headquarters of one infantry division, but there was only ever a brigade size organization there. And that is a couple of infantry battalions of my mind saying a couple of infantry and an armored battalion level organization, which was there normally routinely. But as I said, quite a lot of them were away 
at the time. So they were the force who responded over the initial few days, the initial week or so. So within four or five days, you've got forces arriving by ship. But initially, it's a, so if you, if to use Americans, it's sort of regimental size, although it's co- it's a composite of different types of unit. And, there, you know, and there's an artillery unit there as well. But over the period of the coming weeks, what's assembled is a Marine a team, so several battalions equivalent, each of these teams, but they're composite. So they have attached to them elements of artillery, groups of armoured vehicles, which are task orientated. So essentially, the police, the artillery, the medical organisation are sliced in support of the three combined arms task groups. But from an organisational point of view, they are themselves. So there's an armour task group, but it then divides its resources up amongst the three organisations, one led by the Marines and the other two military with police components embedded. I mean, that that's the task organised. So I mean, in change at different stages in the battle and more resources are attached as they become available and arrive from elsewhere in the Philippines. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes absolute sense. So they had armor protected firepower. Did they have main battle tanks or? No, the Filipinos don't have no main battle tanks. So they had mostly M113, variety of wheeled APCs. And so Simbo, which is a British uh, Cadillac gauge commando, vehicles from the sort of from the 60s, which were used by the police. M113 and M1 of various vintages with different turrets. I'll talk a little bit more about the armor later on they did some, some quite interesting improvisation but the level of protection is m113 so splinter and small arms fire levels of protection nothing more okay so that's all the questions i had the sort of question i'm posing is why did it take four months and i think it's kind of useful to break the militants tactics, techniques, and procedures into two stages. So there's, first of all, how did they keep the AFP at bay for several weeks while that chaotic situation is going on? And then, separately, how did they then resist a further four months? And if we look at one of the bridges across the river, which was known as the Bipandi or Baloi Bridge, it took a, a marine battalion several weeks and very heavy losses to cross and, and secure the far side. Why was that? And I look at the, there's a number of factors, but the first one I identify is situational dominance. So the militants had the advantage of local knowledge, but they were also using hobby drones pretty widely. And again, this has become more common since. So they knew where the AFP were, but the AFP had a very confused picture and completely underestimated the size of the threat. They were somewhat for political reasons, but mostly because they really did think it was you know a hundred odd people in the first when it first started. So first issue is situational dominance. Then what happens is the insurgents effectively ambush the responding forces and. What what occurs is the police send pairs of armoured vehicles in to relieve their colleagues. The army do the same. And there's a consistent plan. There's a, a chicane or a roadblock of some kind that slows the vehicles down. And then once it's slowed down or stopped, they hit it with RPGs. Now, what they had in Barawi were almost entirely RPG-2s, which is not hasn't got the performance of the RPG-7, which I'm much more familiar with. But at close range, it'll hit roughly the same way as an RPG-7 will hit. And the, war, the RPG-2 warhead will go through for about 20 centimetres of, of 
involved homogenous armor. So easily going through anything that's being sent against. So what happens is the police vehicles are stopped. They are Some of the crew are killed from RPG strikes. And then the vehicles are disabled and stopped and halted. And then the militants start throwing petrol bombs and charges from buildings above at the same time as shooting out the optics. And there's some video taken from probably 10 meters away by a jihadist inside a building of an army, the turret on a, an army vehicle, rotating, swinging and firing wildly during those engagements. The police teams were all killed. In the case of one of the army teams that went across the bridge was ambushed. They lost several people to RPGs from the first strike and the platoon commander managed to evacuate the half platoon he had into a nearby solid building. And from there, with air support and artillery support, they held out for five days until they were rescued. But essentially, right across the front, the armoured response was knocked out, which gave a pretty clear message to what remaining armoured vehicles they were there. So once the FP had collected more forces, and this is people literally force marching from on operations 20 kilometres away, picking up some ammunition at the divisional headquarters and going straight into battle, as they pushed down on foot, what they encountered was sharpshooters positioned to fire along the open streets, so enfilading the streets. So that then starts to stop them when they try and push in, push across bridges, push up the narrow streets. And then, the, and that's the using the better trained surgeon who, who are able to engage reasonably effectively at 100 metres or more. And then the other less trained, the armed prisoners and who've just been given weapons, they send them down to the flanks and have them fire from defilade across the streets as the Filipinos try to position themselves to avoid, as they try and get out of the kill zone on the street, then they're being ambushed, well, not fully ambushed, but they're getting sniped at from or fired at from sort of the cowboys running around. Again, you will may have seen some of the video at the time. It's not particularly effective fire, but the combination of being pinned on the street and then roving groups moving freely all around them starts to pin the troops. But what then happens is the pinned troops are hit by radio-controlled IEDs. And in one case, a group of three or four militants effectively knocked out an entire Marine company with one IED and throwing bombs on the spice. They inflicted 53 casualties, including 11 dead with their ambush. So it's not the AFP aren't trying. They're trying, they're pushing hard in, and then they're being hit really hard. And of course, what complicates this is that's the kinetic military problem. But at the same time, the militants are transmitting messages with video uplinks. So they've literally got a video television station uplink. They're collecting videos, sending them back, uploading them back to the Middle East. They're getting processed and edited in the Middle East and then put it, been putting out within hours. So what's coming out is messages from hostages pleading to the president to stop the attacks. And at the same time, the local religious and political leaders going under white flags and negotiate. So you've got an enormous ambiguity. And it's not only kin the kinetic fight is very difficult. You don't want to compromise the rescues that are going on. So because the intersection of the sheer tactical problem and the limited AFP capability, because it was very much less than a, a couple of battalions worth of troops available, even after people had come back from the jungle, the limited capability, the uncertainty, the political uncertainty is a hiatus. And that's where the military assemble more forces. They isolate the main battle area, the population flee. And and the rescues happen. And the rescuing is enormously important because of this battle of the narratives, because it changes the way the community perceive the armed forces and the police, because they actually see them trying to rescue their friends and relatives. That's 
taking place over perhaps three weeks, they're still going on for a further perhaps four months. So the other level of tactics is key to why that occurred. And and the, the first thing, and again, all of these things are common to recent and historical battles. They expanded the existing network of tunnels. So there were already tunnels under Marawi. In the 70s, they dug tunnels so that the religious leaders could move around and avoid arrest by the government forces. So those were there already. Then they forced hostages to dig connecting tunnels between the existing bunkers that are already there. Then they used the cellars of the mosques to store munitions and hold groups of hostages because they quite correctly calculated that the AFP wouldn't strike them. So effectively, they had shelter from anything that the AFP could bring against them. And incidentally, the, the mosques provide what would might be considered from a scientist's point of your natural experiment in the use of different forms of firepower. And when we, when I was there with my colleague Katya Theodorakis being shown around, the young officers were showing us literally, you know, this is where I was, I was shooting from here. And they explained how every time they tried to attack the mosques, because they'd been forgiven Bidden to use high explosives, they lost lots of soldiers trying to turn assaults, pull back losses, and eventually they were successful using CS gas. But whereas all other structurally similar buildings which weren't mosques, they managed to slowly but take very straightforward way. Another important thing from Marawi, and again we've seen this at Mosul and other Middle Eastern battles, snipers. It was a complete surprise to the AFP to encounter snipers. Now, time sniper gets bounded around quite a lot to mean anybody who's shooting at you. But what I mean is my marks men, marks people who can consistently hit a target several hundred metres away and working with an observer fire one or two shots from a really well concealed position and then move. And when we were there, we looked at some of the firing ports and there was one that was no bigger than the end of a paperback book on the interior wall of a mosque and even and there was lots of shrapnel damage on the on that wall it was if you were actually in the room it was difficult to see it the chances of seeing this from several hundred meters away in the street looking in through a window and spotting this thing very very difficult and that was what they did they did not expect that so we're getting into the sniper counter sniper narrative which would be familiar to stalingrad for instance then immediately outside buildings where either troops were going to cluster for an assault or armored vehicles would move they put IDs on command wires. And that, combined with the RPG threat, meant that armoured vehicles were pretty much limited to providing firepower and occasional casualty evacuation. And whilst we can sort of imagine using our more heavily protected armoured vehicles, we need to bear in mind that if they had had RPG-7s and were above, and they certainly had the opportunity to get above, even main battle tanks would be have been vulnerable in the same way that the armoured vehicles they had got prove vulnerable from RPG-2s from on top. So we don't, we've got to be careful of making the, drawing the conclusion from Mirai, ah, well, they just had M113 type vehicles, we'll be all right. Go, yeah, not necessarily so. Then inside the buildings, the militants put IDs in the doorways, on the stairwells and in ceilings. And that effectively made any normal entry too risky. If you went in through the existing apertures, you were likely to die. And many Filipinos did die early in the fight because of that. And what the militants also used was a variation on those sort of classic Viet Cong, or much older than that, tactic of hugging the enemy. So by creating what the Filipinos called rat holes, as well as loopholes on the interior walls of the buildings, they would stay forwards until they detected an AFP attack. Usually, artillery firing, but often hearing an aircraft overhead. They hear an aircraft overhead, they withdraw to the next building. Then as soon as the assault 
began their return and they're coming through as close as they can to where the AFP's troops have just assaulted into the building. But the insurgents are firing through loopholes in the wall from one room away, throwing grenades through and either assaulting back into where the Filipinos are or then pushing backwards and forwards. So that made it a very slow fight. And we can ponder, you know, how else might it have been done? But the response I've described as a slice, we can look at it on, on the macro level. On the task force level, there were the three task groups slowly pushing the militants in towards the, the water. And if you imagine it as a block terrain bounded on the southwest and southeast by the lake and by the northwest as by the river, the Marines are have coming from the northeast and also responsible for the river. They have a lot of difficulty crossing the river, so they're quite slow. But uh, away from the river, the other two army task forces make more progress. Looking on the large level, it's fairly straightforward. It's just a slow, slow squeezing, which over many weeks squeezes the defenders into an area about a kilometre by 800 metres. And it's probably more useful to look at what happens at that latter stage, this last month, because by that stage, the Filipinos have new weapons, new equipment, they've got foreign overhead support, they've got the advice of a whole lot of friendly special forces. They're using the tactics that have literally been used in the Middle East two weeks before. So you can say broadly, it's best practice. It still took a month. If we unpack that, and this is my superimposing our own terms on it, because it makes it easier to understand. But by the latter stage of the battle, the way they were fighting was what we would call a, or special forces community would call a deliberate stronghold assault. But what stronghold assault was originally conceived as a one-off recovery operation, they were doing this constantly at a rate of a building per subunit day, roughly. So a company is taking one building per day at the latter stages of the operation. And that's slow, and there's a reason. So if we deconstruct that, the first stage and the longest stage is really the reconnaissance and plan. So they conducted reconnaissance in great detail, looking at the building from every angle. Find the positions, yes, but particularly where are the booby traps? Where are the withdrawal routes? Because the withdrawal routes probably won't have the booby traps on. What are the different options for entry? And only then will they make their plan in detail. Having made the plan, the next stage is to coordinate the overwatch. And again, this is quite often in training, you see this being treated quite glibly. Special forces tend to be reasonably good at that, because they're about sniper overwatch when they're quite used to having the snipers talking on the air doing the core but for more conventional troops that's not the the norm you have fire support groups and they shoot in and then as a signal they stop shooting that's typically conventional army behavior this needs to be much more carefully coordinated because what's going to happen is you're going to the overwatching groups are going to be looking at a building which is currently an objective which has got enemy in it at the minute you're going to have your troops assaulting it and the battle may well go backwards and forwards and you want to engage the enemy but not your own troops and it's the coordination of the detailed fire control methods around that that take time and literally commanders going to spending an hour or two to get round to the flanking unit to talk to the machine gunner or whoever it is and say do you understand that room there that window that's where I want you to shoot because we're coming in from this other and failure to do that in early stages caused a lot of casualties. So having done the planning having coordinated the overwatch what's then done is the building is struck so it's it's a strike and ideally what they wanted to do was to hit with direct fire artillery around into every roof 
so their experience was a 105 round in a room is sufficient to trigger the IEDs in there. But in many cases, you could get a 105 into a position where it could strike the body. So in many cases, they're using aircraft bombs. And again, you many of our listeners will be aware, they had some blue on blue with aircraft bombs because of misguidance and mistargeting. And the other thing is people are getting glib about aircraft bombs. There's a building in the middle of Morale, which is a five-story building. I've got some photographs of the damage inside from two 250-kilo air-delivered bombs that have gone off in the center, sort of on the second or third floor. They've massive great holes in the concrete. Everything's shattered. It's fallen through below. The furniture's smashed. Yet, despite those two bombs having detonated in it, there was at least one insurgent still alive in the building, able to kill a couple of the attackers. So the business about putting a 105 round or a significant amount of HE into every space before you enter is a real requirement. So having done that, they would then create a breach. Now, in the early months, it was often by hand with sledgehammers. And kind of I commented, that's a, something that we talk about, but rarely practice. And it's a lot more difficult than it appears. Later, they used engineers bringing explosive charges. But of course, somebody's got to go forwards to the wall or uh, to the contact point where they become vulnerable. So ideally, they'd use their armored vehicles, bring up armored vehicles to create the breaches. And they did some fascinating improvisation here, with mainly by imp- using improvised armoured bulldozers, which would push a path through the rubble so the M113s could get forwards and engage quickly and then withdraw before the insurgents could redeploy an anti-armour weapon. And quite remarkably, they built ramps, the engineers built ramps, so they could get the M113 type platforms into the upper stories to fire down or along from within buildings. So they are using the APCs to fight from within buildings to engage other buildings to create the breaches particularly. And then only then was the assault attempt. And an assault is an assault. And and that's, you know, most armies have got room combat fairly well squared away. And that's what Australia did some sense of training teams to, to assist with that. But that, in a sense, I would say is, is almost the least of the worries. If everything else has been done well, then you shouldn't be having an attritional fight in the building. But if your clearance is successful, then you're reinforcing the assault is not the end. And again, this is back to World War II experience. Recent training, often you seize the house and then you shout, reorganize and you go on to the next one. That's what they started with and they realized it was a deadly mistake because the resurgents who were happy to lose their lives or not happy but, but sought to take people with them would counterattack. So immediately the first wave's assaulted. Another wave comes through to reinforce. They are covering outwards. Then another group come forwards bringing sacks of rubble and soil and they fortify the position before they go on to the next attack. So hence the about 24 hours. Now there were variations. So one of the units in particular had good night vision gear. So they would tend to do their assaults at night with the advantage. Others didn't. So there are some quite interesting variations between the troops. But broadly, that what I've described is the way the units were fighting at their final stages. So for all these reasons, it's a slow, difficult fight. There are other reasons. One is the Filipinos have been honest enough to acknowledge lack of experience and equipment. There are also political considerations because of the possible option of negotiation and the imperatives of rescuing hostages and minimizing civilian casualties. They went slow. Now, if you look at the pictures, the HE flattened the city just like there are a whole bunch of cities of the Middle East. But why is it not a Fallujah effect? If we recall the first Battle of Fallujah in 2004, 
the narrative has is a resistance by a few diehard Ba'athists within Iraq itself, within both Shia and Sunni communities, becomes a popular insurgency because of the perception of civilian casualties and US recklessness. Now, that's a story in itself. But the question is, why didn't that happen in Marawi? Well, one reason, the population evacuated. That's crucial. But there were still plenty of civilians there. And the issue, perhaps, is the delay. So the delay time for the population to move and for the battle of the narratives to occur. Now, I've got to be careful here. We're getting the Filipino side of the story and the full political impact of this isn't yet decided. If they don't rebuild the city eventually and sort out some of the problems that remain, insurgency problem hasn't gone away forever. But there wasn't a backlash. And it's clear that there was a a huge effort in soft power. And we can see examples at every level. So at the tactical level, there was direct communication with the insurgents, the hostages and the trapped during the battle. So traditional ways, loudspeakers. And in that part of the Philippines, banners are a traditional advertising. And if your son has a birthday, you put a banner out. So there were banner communications. They dropped messages in plastic bottles from helicopters, largely to message to the hostages who are trapped, but also directly talking to the insurgents, telling them that they were trapped and they had no hope and literally conducting conversations from 100 meters away. So there's a direct line of operation to demoralize the insurgents and to give hope to the hostages. Then at the operational level, there's a separate big effort to communicate with the displaced people via the local and traditional uh, leaders and the people of the area to change the narrative to say, we, you know, we're trying to look after you. And then at the same time, at the strategic level, there's a national, international embrace of, of the press. And although the Filipinos use the word soft power, I think that sometimes conjures up the wrong image. It's not weak. The Filipinos absolutely understood the story of their lethal kinetic operations was the equal weapon to the killing. So to make it clear, the story was important, the story of killing. So while they applied the martial law differently than they had in the past, and they've got a task force commanded by a brigadier general who's doing the welfare effects and getting on the TV all the time and going around personally engaging. Then they've got an information support organization which is able to influence the enemy and their hostages using wider social media. And they've got online. So their first ever social media operators course happened literally at the same time as this went down. So they had 80 operators. At the end of the course, they shipped them down to Marawi, put them in a building nearby and ran 24 seven online operation. What I was really impressed by was basically the young Filipino soldiers were just given carte blanche just to get out on, on the internet, hack, change the messaging, do whatever the, your country needs you, not getting colonels to sign off every message. Quite remarkable. So they were doing all that, but they want, made sure they had the best messages. So they put helmet cameras on many of their soldiers and they put that combat footage straight back online including pictures of their soldiers killing insurgents because rather than so to compete with the murderous videos that the insurgents were putting out they're putting okay you know, the message is we're coming to get you and we're doing it seriously that somehow missed outside of the Philippines I think a clear understanding they had to communicate victory because that was at least as important to, to actually doing the killing so I do have a question, though, from my own studies of the Battle of Mosul, different armies, different conditions, different building constructions. From my own panel I did with the Filipino general in his showing of the trenches that they had to dig to include the armored personnel carriers up on different floors, the direct fired artillery, the company on a building, this very systematic clearing from the outside in, like squeezing the enemy. And it almost sounds like they're facing a fortified structure in 
every fight. Something seems different about Morari. I don't know if it's just the construction of the buildings, how how the enemy was approaching its forward kind of defensive line, creating a fortified structure for every building that has to be taken down like that. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know what, the, I forget what the number is, but it was like 80%, if not more of the building structures were damaged. And I don't know, it hasn't been repopulated yet. Uh, no, it hasn't. And that's contentious. So the politics surrounding rebuilding are complicated. And I mean, it's, it's a separate subject. But clearly, if that is not managed, then we could go be back to where we've been in the past in Mindanao with future insurgencies. It doesn't look encouraging, I have to say, but that is not my space. So I, I hesitate to do more than say, look, there's a, a looming problem there. So what about the fighting? I know you, you've you argued that there were better tools for reducing four to five structures in World War II than we, than we might have in the Western military today. Everything from flamethrowers to specialized vehicles, specialized weapons. This seems like a very high explosive artillery joint munitions into every building fight. What do you think they could have used differently? Well, I think what they did do is interesting because they had 105. They also had the Otto Malara 105 pack howitzer in particular. So they had a tool that they could manhandle into different positions and therefore direct fire HE from difficult positions was possible. And I think that's something we really need to hoist. I mean, and frankly, the Australian Army's got rid of the equivalent and not many armies have small compact firepower that will achieve that. We tend to think, well, we can do that indirectly, but there are a whole set of problems to do with reliability, the size of the munition that comes down and the sheer quantity. Because if you're going to put one of these into every room, you're talking about thousands of rounds. So I think that it's useful to look at their experience and say, whether it's by accident or good design, they were using direct artillery firepower successfully as part of their system. It's interesting that what they've concluded from going away lessons is for their new armored vehicle, a fire support vehicle, they've gone with, a, there was some discussion of bigger guns and they've gone 105 is, is where they're going to stay for a utility. Look, I think the use of bulldozers so they didn't have armored bulldozers, but they improvised armor, and which is a separate story. But that was central. So having blades to clear rubble, because without that, armored vehicles often can't progress. But the interesting thing here is there are new things around drones, and there are new things about electronic warfare, many of which we really can't talk about because they're quite sensitive and provided by allies. But most of the kinetic stuff is standard. The medical, the forward treatment, the difficulty of evacuation, the huge demand on ammunition, the use of sappers to blow pathways and to clear, use of armored vehicles inside buildings, the use of improvised armor. And whilst you may have seen pictures of the logs put on the outside of armored vehicles, kinetically, physically, not necessarily a lot protection. But psychologically, because the enemy believed they were getting protection, they did. A bit like the IDF had with their toga armor, which the opposition for many, many years didn't shoot at because they thought it was protection. The same. But I guess my key point I'd say here, this is all all things that have been done before. And we should perhaps look at Marawi in that vein. So that makes sense. Because I say it does echo what we're seeing about the battles you mentioned elsewhere. Yes, the building construction with this, particularly with the reinforced concrete cellars everywhere, that's a bit different. That way that the shanty building and the putting building on a few more stories and putting a few more layers of concrete on the inside of the wall to support it meant you had quite tough layers of buildings, but broadly similar to the destruction you'd seen in some areas of Syria. So last question. I know you mentioned it, and I actually know from, again, the panel I did with the general, they use tear gas liberally and to, in their opinion, to great success in clearing enemy held buildings. Now, in the US battles and in the Iraq battles, that wasn't one of the tools. No. And that's a vexed question because 
If you are conducting a policing operation, that's internal security, the chemical weapons prohibitions do not apply to you, but otherwise they do. And certainly Iraq is ambiguous enough to prohibit the use of irritant gases. And it's a vexed question. When I visited Geneva last time and talked to the ICRC, they're very clear. They do not want backtracking on that. Despite the dilemma as a humane option, it's probably a better option. That said, smoke weapons will in many cases have the same effect. And certainly that's the Russian understanding. The Russians have the shoulder launch RPO series. Most people know about the thermobaric round, but they have an incendiary round and a smoke round, both of which are quite nasty. But they're there for different purposes, largely to do with the clearing of buildings. Their contemporary battle drill is they shell the hell out of the place and then a team drive up in an MTLB, come out the back and fire a number of shoulder launch weapons to have those effects. The incendiarism and the smoke are a big part of that. And where we stand legally, if the objective is to blind your enemy and prevent them effectively engaging you, then smoke generating munitions are legitimate. All right. I know it's a vexing question and you know my position on it. When I heard that they use it to great effect, again, in urban terrain, mostly void of the population, which we can't assume will be the future, this ability to evacuate a majority. Although there were, like you said, plenty of civilians, plenty of concerns about protecting civilian casualties. You can't assume that great evacuation of the population or the time to do it. Well, Charles, this has been a fascinating conversation. I know that people are going to love it and I really appreciate your time and expertise in giving it to us. Well, thank you. Really enjoyed chatting. We really should share the lessons that the the Filipinos offer us. Thanks, John. Thanks, Charles. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.